listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today, my guest is author, consultant and coach Mary Maguire. She tells me that her purpose in life is to help women find career success and I'm sure that we're going to hear a fascinating journey along the way. So welcome, Mary. Thank you, Jill. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm very excited to be here. And I love the fact that you call it a show. <laughs> <laughs> All podcasts are shows. I, I know, but who knew that I would have a show one day? It's, uh, it's coming late in life. Uh, thank you. Yeah. How this works is it's great to hear from the very beginning so where do you want to start well let me start at the very beginning because um I think as you as you get older you realize how important your start was to where you've got on the journey uh, today Mm -hmm. and I use journey as a metaphor an awful lot in the work that I do as well because I think it's so important for us to see we're always coming from somewhere we're always going to somewhere and we're always in motion so we're always in some point of transition at every moment in our life even if we're not conscious of it so thinking of or everything in our journey is important but remembering the start of our journey is equally important so for me I was brought up in Birmingham in England it was a, a industrial city it's the second city in England not very nice at the time slightly better now um to um immigrant parents they came over from Ireland in the 1950s and um, I was the youngest of four surviving children the fact I have to say surviving says it all they were Irish Catholic my mother was constantly pregnant had an awful lot of miscarriages Um, and the the whole environment I I was brought up in was chaotic and difficult and full of tension so my father was an alcoholic he wasn't a violent alcoholic, just to say, but he was what, what that meant was he was either not in the home or when he was in the home, he might as well not have been in the home because he wasn't really conscious or cogent or really there for us in any way that was important. And my mother, for a variety of reasons that probably contributed to it, was a highly anxious woman. So she was always in a state of panic or near panic about everything that came up in life which as children when you're looking to parents for support for nurturing for um for the sense of stability in life it just wasn't there and as a result um I think that there was a lot of wildness in me growing up um you know a lot of rebellion in me and probably a lot of anger as well um but also a sense of having to find my own way um so that's that, that's essentially what has always been the case for me I've always had to find my own way um, I left school with no qualifications and again that that contributes to the fact that m- my parents had very low expectations of us academically it wasn't an important factor for them not like it is for parents now because there was no expectation to them. They both left school at 14 and their parents before them had left school between 12 and 14 and their parents before them. So they came from a whole line of, you know, you just get by, you do what you can, you don't make a fuss. And therefore they were the 
they were the values they imbued in us. And particularly there was a gender split in them values, which I talk a lot in my book, The Female Edge. You know, why do we have differences in behaviours, marked differences between men and women? And some of that is the socialisation process. So men, it's there to be the breadwinner, go out and get a job and do well. And women, it's get a job that fits around the family, but make sure you're the homemaker. And I think it's different for women now, but I think in the generation I was brought up in, that was very strong. Oh, so much you've, you've thrown in there. Uh, one question is, did that lack of expectation for you give you any sense of freedom in a way? Um, I think at times yes and at times no. So although I speak from a place where there's not really any trauma anymore because I've worked through things, there were some quite traumatic um, things in my childhood. One of the things that happens when you have a family where it's chaotic, where it's very clear from people on the outside it's chaotic and there's no real standards, is you become a, um, a target for bullies. So bullying was a strong factor um, in my early years growing up. Um, both at home but particularly at school um, where it where it comes out uh, strongly so like finding out where the freedom was it took me until I got to my teenagers and I became more rebellious that I started to see the freedom now when you're growing up freedom is a double-edged sword because in, in one sense it's great you can do anything on another sense without boundaries it's very hard to work out what's what's good for you what's not what's a good standard for how you live your life so I think it had a double-edged sword as I got through my teenage years and actually um, got older without a doubt it really helped me. Hmm. And so you left school with no qualifications so it's so what happened there um well i i was a bit like a ball in a pinball machine <laughs> if if you can imagine that so a pinball machine it throws the ball all over the place and i was a little bit like that i i really didn't know what i wanted to do i went into i decided i made a decision which ended up being a big decision in my life which was to move away from birmingham so what I realised was if I constrained myself in the environment I was in, I was going to continue be con to be constrained by it and all of the expectations and the history and everything. So I took a living job in a hotel in Somerset, so a nice little um, tourist area. And then from there went to another hotel where, with a living role in the Cotswolds, which I happen to still live in the Cotswolds, which is a lovely area uh, between Cheltenham and Oxford and Stratford, which is a very pretty part of England. Um, so I went into a living hotel position. And what that helped me to do is start to think about what would I do differently now? But I had to take myself out of the environment that I've been brought up in to really start that thinking. And I started to think about education quite early. I did want to go into education. I did want to do something with my life. So I was already within a year starting to um, apply for um, educational courses where I could get into, where I could get to a degree. So that seems um, quite a jump from leaving school with no qualifications to wanting to actually be the educator, if I'm hearing correctly. 
I wanted to be educated rather than the educator. Uh, okay. Not the yeah, educator. Maybe that's the way I said it. Um, it was a really strong itch in me. Um, and I, I think I realise now that both my parents were intelligent. They were just uneducated. Um, certainly my mother was always writing things down. Now, because she couldn't order her thoughts and she was in a state of anxiety the majority of the time, they came out as fairly incoherent when she'd write notes and things like that. But when I look back with, you know, the maturity I have now... I think actually there was a huge amount of intelligence in it. It was just wasn't harnessed in any way. And I think me and my other two siblings who could be educated, one of them had autism, um, have all gone on to have college degrees and multiple degrees. I've got three degrees or two masters. My brother's got three masters degrees. So we all clearly had an intelligence in us, but we all of us, all three of us, the siblings left school with no qualifications. So our chaotic childhood did not serve us educationally, but we all had a real strong sense of there must be more, there must be more we can do. Yeah, there must be more. It gave you something to push push against. Yes. Um, how much did your mother's anxiety affect you? Because uh, we both work as coaches and mm. anxiety plays a big part in our success, doesn't it? Yeah. So I've got a lot more layers to this question than I would have had before. So the, the top layer of that, of that answer is I learned to be very calm in all situations. Mm. So because I seen panic around me and as a child, it's very unsettling to see somebody panic. And in not my latest book, Female Age, but in my first book, I actually relay a story of when I was on a, a day trip with my mother and we'd lost our way in the town and we couldn't work our way back to the coach. And I was still quite young at the time. And my mother was panicking, like, like got into a complete panic, didn't, couldn't remember the coach, couldn't remember the address, couldn't remember anything. And I was still quite young. And I remember holding hands and saying, Mum, it's fine. We'll find a way. We'll find a way to get there. And I didn't have a clue. I just know I needed to calm her down for us to be able to move forward. And that became an inherent skill for me. And that is an inherent life skill in me. So what I'm known for, so when I'm doing consulting projects and we're doing a, a global you know scale change of some sort and something goes wrong and everyone around me is losing their head and panicking I go it's fine nobody is going to die today so therefore we can all calm down and find a way through it so my mother has helped me with that skill because I had to learn it to help her on the other side of it is I think that there was some nuggets of fear and uncertainty that were um, embedded in me from my childhood and one of them was the fear of not being good enough and that is a fear that actually has um, been a shadow in my adult working for a long time now I've, I've dealt with it and I'm dealing with it it's never fully gone away because I can observe it now but the the fear of not being good enough means that you over deliver, you, um, uh, you over anticipate, you're constantly concerned that whatever you've done for somebody, they might need more. So you wear yourself out for this external um, standard that isn't there, but it's driven by your own fear. And that came from clearly my mother never felt good enough. And that was one of her fears. But I only started to realise it was my fear about 10 years ago. And this not feeling good enough tends to plague many women I think on the podcast the other week with uh, a very intelligent uh, high achieving woman uh, she thought that the university had made a big mistake 
I heard it. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Made a big mistake letting her into the university. And I think yeah. we, we all suffer from that. Uh, so you moved to Somerset, you you took a living job. I mean, that was quite inspired to to move your whole get away from the environment mm. and have that security of living in. Mm. And then you did various um, qualifications. So let's move into jobs then. Yeah. So what helped me was in one of them living jobs, I met my life partner, who was a chef at the time, um, and her name's Joy. And what happened was when I settled into that relationship with her, I got the emotional stability I needed to be able to flourish. I didn't realize that fully at the time because you're obviously going through the turbulence of new relationship, same sex relationship, even especially in the eighties um, and all the difficulties there. But what she did was she brought a real belief in me and she seen my intelligence immediately. She says, look, you are very bright. You're capable of anything. You should be doing far more than you're doing. So there was this, foundation that came to me an emotional foundation and support and that has been my support ever since it's 33 years we've been together now and um, from that she encouraged me to get back into education and to do the qualification so I did a um, I, I redid the the leaving school qualifications that I'd missed and then I actually went on and did a social work degree and social work became quite a strong thing for me first of all because I'm very people focused you know I lead from the heart I lead from compassion and that became a natural path but also as I said very briefly I had a sister with autism she was two years older than me non-verbal very high levels of needs around her and um, she really influenced me in a positive way I was very close to her you know felt very emotionally protective of her and she helped me to see that that would be a very good career to go in and help people who are vulnerable so that was my first career choice. So social work helping people that seems to be a theme that uh, has continued so how long were you with social work and when did you move out of it? Um, I worked across the spectrum. So I worked with children and families, often dealing with um, physical and sexual abuse. Um, then I worked with teenagers and young people in care or leaving care. And then I went into adults and older people care. So I went across the spectrum, across the age ranges. Mm -hmm. um, but I learned very early that I wasn't suited for social work as it was practiced. And I'll give you a little... <laughs> little scenario of why that was so so one summer during during my time doing my qualifications I worked at one of the um, social work teams and what they asked me to do was to field the front desk so the front desk what they call the duty desk is you're taking any call that comes in about any case that's coming coming up and uh, then you have to work out very quickly who needs to see this person? How quickly do they need to see them? So it's um, it's like your, your, your emergency call service. And what I realised was I couldn't work out quickly enough who might be the social worker for this case that was coming in and how urgent it was. And I thought, we must be able to solve for that. So I created what I understand now as a visual performance management board. And on that, I did all of the social workers. I, I listed all of their cases. I did a red, amber, green status, like a uh, traffic light status of red being urgent, amber being we need to be careful here, and green being, no, this one's a fairly low level, it's okay. So I could immediately work out whether they needed to help or not. 
that sounds very logical to me. In the social work world, it was heresy. It was the worst thing I could do ever because I was bringing transparency and accountability to an office where social workers like to have the freedom to decide what they took. And what became very clear was the social workers who always said yes were overloaded and the social workers who were said no were very underloaded. And that became very clear. So what it showed me was I have skills to bring, but in social work, the culture is so driven by the individual social worker's choice of how they work that bringing in anything that was transparency at that time, not saying it's the same now, was just a no-no. So I think it was an indicator for me that my analytical mind and my systems thinking mind wasn't going to do as well in social work as it could in other areas. That's a beautiful example of where you may well be gifted, you may well have skills, but where you are, they're just unappreciated. And you yes. need to find somewhere where your strengths are going to be appreciated. So the place wasn't for you. You were trying to bring in transparency uh, and equity, it appears. So where did you move to? So I, I did a jump into management of services for about seven or eight years and became chief exec of a charity um, in Henny on Thames. And that was where I did my MBA as well. So I'd done a degree. I did an MBA, a master's in business in, in Henley um, Management College, which is a very elite area. Um, but I just happened to get that sponsored. And I worked with adults with autism and I, I built that organisation for five years. And all of the things I've just expl explained to you with the things that I did I worked out first of all the core model of care what that's about what the values are what's the structure for staff what's the way that we actually build transparency what's the way we build accountability and performance in here and how do we get more people involved in the organization so we bring more funds in so it was a wonderful um, a wonderful time of building an organization almost from the ground up and and every part of the organization was touched with the work that I did what was the name of that? The Kingwood Trust. And it's still alive and thriving today. And it's based on Henley on Thames. And it was set up by an amazing, inspirational woman called Dame Stephanie Shirley. And she was an amazing um, pioneer, female pioneer in her own right in the 60s and 70s in the IT industry. And she was the person who set up the charity and was a very, very strong role model for me, both in a negative and a positive way, but very, very powerful person to have around and really helped me with my development. What was the negative bit? The negative was that she was a maverick. She didn't really know how to bring people on a journey. And so she would be the person who would um, almost be like a steamroller. It's my way or no way. So there was that very strong element of the inability to negotiate and build bridges. But on the positive side, a real uh, trailblazer, very strong revision, huge energy in terms of bringing people in a direction she wanted them to go, not good with dissension or listening to people. Hmm. She's somebody that's come on my radar, uh, not least because when I was young, my first name's Stephanie. And, you know, in your teenage years, you sort of want to be a bit, oh, do I want to be Steve? And uh, mm -hmm. at the time I was called Jill and I continue to be. So she called herself 
Steve, maybe to succeed in a man's world. Absolutely. And that's one of the stories in the book. I actually start with that story because it's it's not only indicative of our very near history, because that's the 60s and 70s. She changed her name and suddenly people took her seriously. She mm. changed from Stephanie to Steve. And mm. the rest really is history. She built a multi-million pound um, technology industry, initially just for females only and females only working from home. So a, a really inspiration figure in the world of women at work but also with them shadows um but yeah in incredible woman and an incredible story and somebody that was doing then what people still say we can't do now you you yeah. can't have women doing part-time working from home give them that freedom mm. um and yet as you say she became multi multi-millionaire so um you were CEO of a charity. You you moved them forward. Where did you go then? So I jumped into consulting from there. I was looking at a range of things, like should I carry on in the charitable field or non-profit field? Um, should I go into um, some other field aligned to it? And I remember being told and the amount of times in my life I've been told you can't do something and it seemed like, oh, great, there's a boundary for me to cross. <laughs> and I remember being told at the time when I was searching around is you can align to your industry or you can align to your role. So become a CEO in a slightly different industry or stay in your industry and a slightly different role. But you can't do both at the same time. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I could. And I thought, I, I wonder. And I, what I ended up doing, and my MBA did help me with this because I'd done some specific research that caught people's attention, was I moved industry and role in one jump. So the industry I moved into was management consultancy and obviously the role that I went in as was a consultant. And it was a hard jump to make because um, it was a very male-dominated industry. It was quite a hostile work environment I went into. I'd come from quite a collaborative, well, not quite, it was collaborative. You know, I was the one who was setting the tone and the culture, so it was very engaging and approachable. And, you know, everyone got on with everyone, was very respectful, into one which was highly competitive, lots of um, bullying going on lots of lots of um, issues going on and and a very strong bias towards the men being better at consulting than women I didn't know I was going into anything like that until I arrived in it and I thought oh gosh this is tough <laughs> but clearly I've been in that line for 20 odd years so clearly I found a way through it but it was a big culture shock initially you're talking about the men and how they treated you at you also said a lovely phrase there about leaders set the tone. Leaders absolutely set the tone mm. for, for an organisation. But um, consultancy, male-dominated, so you must have been with an organisation as a consultant. Yes, I was for quite a few years. That was my choice mm -hmm. um, because I had to learn the trade. Um, you, every time you're in a new role, you have to learn the trade of that new role. So, you know, social worker took me a long time to learn that trade. Then as a manager, then as a CEO, another thing, because you're not, you're not, you're not working in the same way anymore. And then as a consultant, what is that about? How do I do it? What, what should I be doing? And I certainly wouldn't have been able to do that myself because my consulting didn't go into the not-for-profit sector, although that's what the thought I would do. I went straight into big government departments and actually advised them on, on things like performance management which linked very much to your social work first role, sitting there allocating work. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't there, don't we always find this? There's always um, 
uh, a theme or a string that that weaves its way through our life and and pops up at certain times and then goes away and pops up again and it's like it's extraordinary how that how that um consistency shows itself when you look back with the benefit of hindsight that is lovely that you raise that because i think one of the key things that we can do for our clients is help them to find that red line that theme throughout their life what have you been building that maybe you're unconscious of mm. uh, so consultancy ultimately you went alone this isn't your first book then no mm. what prompted you to write books in the first place I think that there was quite a strong itch in me to write. I've got a couple of blogs and um, I do articles for different people. So I was always the one that would either write the proposal because I could write a proposal of how we would do the work in, a, in, in quite a clear, structured manner or write our policies and procedures. And as I said, I think that came from a skill from my probably my mother. I don't know about my father. I never really seen him writing anything down. Um, he, he he could read, but whether he wrote very much, I never seen. But my mother would constantly write notes. She'd write letters of complaint, and you know, she she was not somebody to be pushed over in by any means. So, I think it came probably from her. The first book, which is Coming Home to You, is about our journey back to ourselves. You know, as we're growing up, we're getting further and further away from our true sense of who we are because we're focused so much on the outside world and pleasing other people and making them happy that we get to a point of realising, actually, where's my happiness? Where's my sense of identity? And then it's the journey back to ourselves. So that book was about coming home to you and all the ways we can do that. But it was um, seeded by a breakdown in my own health and almost a breakdown in my career as well. I caught um, dysentery while I was working in Africa, became very, very ill, got over that. But then what happened was my immune system started to fall apart. So every little thing that came my way, I would literally be floored with as in unable to work for several days or unable to move. And that took me a long time to get out of that. But the things that helped me out of the bad health into good health again, you know, a minuscule amount of it was the doctors and the medication. A majority of it was me realizing I had to work on my mindset, how I was thinking, how I was talking to myself, how I was working through my energy and my energy practices. And my main energy practice is meditation, but we're all energy beings. So we have to work out a way of keeping our energy bank account, as I call it, in credit rather than in deficit, so that we can actually be there for other people. And I mentioned that fear of not being good enough. That was definitely one of the things that led to that ill health. I was constantly over delivering for everyone to a point where I wasn't delivering for myself at all. Goodness. Coming home to you, I, I love the sound of that, that sometimes in our life we get a bit lost and we need to go back to our real self. So that was your first book then. Well, what was your second what I'd seen, I've mentioned that I'd been a consultant for 20 odd years. In that time, it's always global organisations working with big strategic or operational problems. So my social work and my ability to connect with people, be compassionate, be caring, be there and present and listening to them was a real um, strength for me as I went into consultancy. 
didn't realize it at the time, but have realized it since. But what I started to see in that observing and, and, and helping people and supporting people was that men were doing far better in the senior management and leadership roles, global leadership roles than women, even though I was working with women who were equally talented and equally able, but they were just being overlooked or not being given the opportunity or people were either not taking them seriously or actually being very negative towards them because of the way they behaved. And I just felt very uncomfortable with this complete inequality that I was seeing in the organisations I was supporting. So I decided I wanted to focus on that. How do I help women to be more successful in the workplace? And Although I work a lot with women in the corporate sphere, I also work with women who want to be outside of the corporate sphere and, and find, their, find their path of success independently. And that's also a very good route. And I, and, I, and I encourage that as well. But it's how do they do that? And there was a number of premises that I came from in working out how to do that. The first one, the first premise was women don't need help to be a leader. They've got the nuts and bolts of leadership down. They know how to manage their time. They know how to manage their people. They know how to manage their stakeholders in the main. They know how to run their, run their projects and their operations. That's not where they need the help. Where they need the help is with the mindset and with the belief and with the confidence and with the foundational skills and clarity to help them to navigate their journey on their own terms. And some of that is raising their consciousness that they're working in an uneven playing field, as in it's more geared towards men being successful than women. Um, and we know that and we see that in the world. And therefore, how do they work things out that they can navigate this field knowing that there is this unconscious bias playing out that men make better leaders than women. And, and, and that's not just men who have that bias. Women have that bias as well. We have that because of the socialization process from very young about men being go-getters, competitive, loud, you know, um, aggressive even um, in the way that they behave and women being supportive and collaborative and quiet and demure and um, not making a fuss. And, and we still do that. And it's not just parents who do that socialization. It's the institutions around it. So it's our schools and our educational systems and obviously the world of work as well. Oh, there's so much there. You're, you're talking my language and inherent in what you were saying is it's it's good for women to be conscious that there is that, but not to let that overpower us, not to let that we're not victims here, you know, become aware and what can we do about it? Yeah. So uh, that inspired another book, did it? It did. So what I did was after I'd done a number of coaching programs and I do a range of group coaching programs and individual programs is I started to think, actually, there's a very core model here that I just need to describe to people so that I can reach out to more women and they can find a way through this. So the second premise is success is an inside job. Um, we are get successful in our life when we get success in how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves and how we think about ourselves. So it's very important that we actually do the inside work before we actually worry about the outside success. So I've, I, I created a core model um, called EDGE, which is a model which actually takes women on a four-stage journey. So if I just describe that briefly. So the first E is for 
evaluate what got you here. So using that metaphor journey, what have been the influences that have got you to this point in your career? What have been the good, um, the good experiences? What have been the negative experiences? What have been the drivers? What have been the things that have come to you? And then you can step back when you've done that career um, journey, a career map, and actually say, is this where I want to be now? So are the influences that have brought me here the right influences to take me forward? Um, are the decisions I've made the ones that actually help me to feel fulfilled in my life or do I want to make different decisions? So it brings a sense of clarity by doing that work. And then the second one, D, is for define where you want to go. So where do I want to go from here? What would be my three to five year journey look like? But thinking of my career in the context of life, because clearly a career is not done in isolation. So not just in terms of what I do and the organization I work for, but what about my relationships? What about my, what about my money situation? What about my community and how I can support my community? And what about myself and my own growth? So thinking about that in the, in the round of all them other areas then it g's grow into your ideal leader so what are the skills the habits the mindsets i need to develop to be more confident in how i show up as a leader and the final e is empower your success so what are the ways i can build the right foundation the right support the right people around me to be successful in what i do and a lot of that comes to things like building a really strong ally network making sure that you've um, had the right relationships with your loved ones about your career and what that means and what you might need from them to support you and how you actually empower it in the way that you describe yourself to other people as well and I've put all that in the book, The Female Edge. So The Female Edge, which thank you so much for sending me a copy on. The Female Edge, accelerate your leadership ambition and craft a career on your own terms. And as you're talking, Mary, you are a woman who seems to have, your life seems to be on your own terms. I can hear that. I can hear yes. that very clearly. Um, so you said you've got a blog. Where can people find this blog? Um, so they can find me at findyourjoyfullife.com. It's very long, but if you put it into the words, it's not so bad. Findyourjoyfullife.com. And on there, you'll also find a page about the female edge. And um, there's various things in there. There's a little video about the book. And there's also a couple of the tools from the book that people can download, including one that's very popular called the Career Compass, which is about defining the values. What are the values that drive me in my career? Because, again, that's a really important anchor for us to help us to, um, to, to navigate the world. That's brilliant. And your contact details, you can find them on that, following that? Uh, absolutely. And my LinkedIn, obviously, Mary Maguire. I don't know if you put it in the show notes, but if we, we, I'll, I'll give you the link if we want it. People can connect me with me, LinkedIn and Twitter, and also on Find Your Joyful Life. And the Female Edge book is out now. In Amazon, absolutely. It's out now on Amazon. And um, yeah, it's it's available both as Kindle and as a, as a paper book as well. Well, it, it has been a real, real pleasure, Mary, talking to you. This is only the second time that we've met, but already I'm thinking, oh, you know, when I'm driving through the Cotswolds one day, I, I think I might look her up. <laughs> oh, do, do, Jill. I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
and to come on and to share your journey, to share um, the setbacks, the things that you had to push against, uh, it, it has been inspiring. Thank you so much. And I look forward to reading this book. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jill. It's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you again. And um, there's definitely the kettle is always on whenever you're in the area. Well, lovely. I look forward to that. Thank you very much for coming on the leadership. Oh, I, thank you. Take care.